Well, as we come to God's word this morning, let's open in a word of prayer. Our loving Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your word. That you have spoken your truths to us, that you have revealed them. That you've given your spirit that we might understand them. And I pray that your spirit would open the eyes of our hearts now to hear and to understand all that Christ has said in the passage that we will look at this morning. Father, give us open ears and humble hearts so that we might live unto your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, in our society and in our country, rejecting the long-standing foundation and tradition of Christianity has become increasingly popular. No doubt you've seen the headlines of different people here and there highlighting the fact that they no longer hold to the religious tradition that they had before. Increasing numbers of our neighbors around us are identifying without any religious preference. They say they have no religious tradition by which they follow and they may still be spiritual in some ways but they're not following any particular religious tradition. It also seems that the ruling class of our country, the elites, see it as a moral duty to reject Christian tradition of our history, believing it to be the cause of all of the ills around us. In addition to this, there is a theme and a trend of those who call who go about deconstructing their faith this theme of deconstruction has begun to spread through many parts of the evangelical world many making headlines because of the notable uh, positions that they hold or the popularity that they have they believe that they've dismantled these constricting beliefs that held them in bondage for all of these years and they now feel free. Now we grieve all of these rejections of the truth. They are turning their back on what is the only way of truth. And many of us have seen it in our friends and in our families as well. But there's other, another more subtle rejection that's taking place, a more subtle rejection of the truth and of Christianity in our nation, and it's taking place in churches, nonetheless, in our country. Quote-unquote Christians are redefining what the Bible says, what Jesus taught on such foundational things as gender and sexuality and marriage, where they once taught that homosexuality was contrary to God's design Now they believe there's such a thing as a gay Christian. In the name of inclusion, they are refusing to stand firm on God's clear and inerrant word. In all of these instances, we need to remember that those who reject Christianity or turn their back on the church are ultimately turning their back on Jesus Christ himself. They are making a statement about what they believe about the Son of God. Even those who claim to be a Christian and yet do not follow what he says 
are turning their back on him. Because Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. To reject Jesus Christ today might receive the applause of the world. But make no mistake about it, it comes with devastating consequences. And we can't forget this. Our pluralistic age wants to blunt the edge of all religious claims so that we can all just get along. That the, the black and white nature, particularly of the gospel and of the word of God, needs to be muddled down to a gray so that we don't offend anybody. But we, friends, must stand firm upon God's word and be clear where God's word is clear. And in this and in this sense, we must remain, the, keep the sharp lines of the blessings of following Christ and the consequences, the devastating, catastrophic consequences of failing to do so. Why do we need to do this? The first is for the sake of our own souls. We each, every day, need to hear the reality and be reminded of the reality of the blessings of following Christ and the consequences of falling away of walking away and we also need to keep these sharp lines for the sake of our witness the message we share with the world is urgent precisely because of the consequences of rejecting it and the shortness of time we do not know when time will be up so this morning we are going to look at the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 20 and here he warns the Jewish nation about the consequences of rejecting him. And this passage is going to help impress upon us the magnitude of the issues that are at stake. And so I encourage you, invite you to open your personal copy of God's word, if you're not there already, to Luke chapter 20, verse 9. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, I encourage you to take one in the pew rack in front of you and you can find our passage this morning on page 1045, page 1045. 45. We have been walking our way through the book of Luke, expositing this gospel, and we find ourselves this morning in the Passion Week of our Lord. He entered Jerusalem on a Sunday to great cheers and fanfare. He then entered Jerusalem and into the temple on Monday, and he cleansed the temple, cast out all those who were buying and selling, and he would not allow anyone to pass through. And now we find ourselves on Tuesday of that Passion Week and he's sparring with the chief priests and the scribes. There is a battle going on. These religious leaders are seeking to de destroy Jesus as Luke 19 verse 47 has said. And yet Jesus continues to show his wisdom and his authority and his teaching. In Luke 20 verses 1 through 8 that we saw a couple of weeks ago, Jesus responded to a question by his opponents. His opponents come on the offense, they ask him a question, he responds defensively, and he diffuses the situation, not falling into their trap. But in verse 9, as we'll see this morning, he goes on the offensive, and he begins to call out and to expose the murderous intent of these religious leaders. So let's read our passage this morning Luke chapter 9 verses, Luke chapter 20 rather, verse 9 through 19. It says, and he began to tell the people this parable. 
A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants to, so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. Friends, in this text this morning, I want us to see four contrasts, four contrasts that reveal the heights of God's righteousness and the depths of Israel's depravity. And we need to look at these contrasts so that we would see the catastrophic consequences of rejecting God's son. So the first contrast we're going to see is number one, God's patience in the face of Israel's obstinacy. God's patience in the face of Israel's obstinacy. And we see this in verses nine through 12. As I said before, Jesus here goes on the offensive in telling of this parable. It says that he began to tell the people this parable. We know the leaders were nearby though. This wasn't just a crowd. This is a crowd that also had the leaders nearby. For as we read the last verse of this passage, chapter verse 19, uh, they knew that he was speaking about them when he gave this parable. This parable is unique in that it's allegorical, which means that it's, there's different pieces of the story that stand for different people or different characters. Not every parable is this way, but this one uh, you can uh, ha you can draw these allegorical principles out in which different elements of the parable correspond to real life. Most parables, rather, are simply a story that teach a single point. Here, it's more drawn out, it's more comprehensive. In fact, you could argue the most comprehensive of all of Luke's parables that he gives. And it's also unique because it really spans the 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 the, the eras of time, it, it gives us a, a perspective of salvation history, of the origin of Israel, of God's view over Israel's history and what they are then doing to Jesus. Jesus gives this parable though to bring in a spiritual effect upon the people. He's got a point, a reason that he gives this, particularly for the nation, for the leaders at this time. Now let's look at how this parable begins, verse 9. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. Three things this man did. He planted a vineyard, he let it out to tenants, 
and he went into another country for a long while. This situation in which a, a landowner has a, a vineyard or some property that's to be producing some sort of agricultural product and then for them to live far away, for them to live in another region and to lease it out or to hire others to manage the land was a common thing in the first century. It happened all over the Roman Empire. But it, would hap it was also common in Israel, particularly in Galilee where there was fruitful farmland. Wealthy landowners would purchase the land, hire others to tend and to keep it, and then would live at some distance away. And therefore, there was some degree of independence that these, these tenant farmers would have on the land that they, were, that they were on. And this was both an advantage and a disadvantage. You didn't have the landowner breathing down your neck, looking at micromanaging you. At the same time, there was also a great degree of freedom which enabled them to begin to take freedoms that were not their prerogative. But the agreement was simple between the landowner and the tenant farmers. The farmers would work the land and then at harvest time, parts of the produce would then go to the landowner who owned the land. The farmers would receive payment for their work. And so it was one in which both parties would benefit. In this case, it was a vineyard and the produce of grapes and the wine that would come from them would have been shared between the landowner and the tenant farmers. Now, you could, have, you could conclude that this illustration of a vineyard would just be kind of a random illustration chosen from life there in Israel. And in one sense, it was a common uh, thing. There were vineyards all over Israel, but this illustration was chosen deliberately, particularly in light of the Old Testament uh, references to Israel that describe Israel as a vine. This is a, a, a uh, prominent metaphor found in the Old Testament that the prophets used to describe Israel as a vine. Asaph was the first to employ this metaphor in Psalm 80 and he used it to describe the spiritual condition of the nation. The health of the vine communicated the health of Israel. If the vine's doing well, Israel's doing well spiritually. If the vine isn't doing well, it's not doing well spiritually. This metaphor was then picked up by the prophets like Ezekiel and Hosea, but most notably by Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 5, the, the prophet uh, records Yahweh's relationship with Israel through this illustration of a vineyard. Israel's described as the vineyard of Yahweh. And rightly so, Yahweh expected to find good grapes at harvest. Listen, Israel, you're my vine. I'm supposed to come to you and find grapes, good grapes, because you are my people. And as you trust in me and as you live according to my word, there should be a good harvest of grapes. But instead, Yahweh comes to this vine and what does he find? He finds wild grapes. Therefore, Yahweh says in Isaiah 5 that he's going to plow up the vineyard. And he did this when he sent his people into exile. But now Jesus takes this illustration of a vine and a vineyard and he applies it to his audience. The illustration or the pieces of the illustration are slightly different, but he's applying it here, trying to bring a spiritual effect to the, his audience, just as Isaiah was seeking to do that for his. Isaiah employed that metaphor in order to bring guilt upon the nation there in his time, so Jesus is employing the illustration here to bring guilt upon the nation in his time. In this case, 
The vineyard, I believe, represents the promises and the blessings of the kingdom that were promised to Israel. The tenant farmers represent the leaders, the religious leaders who were called to shepherd the people of Israel, the, the chief priests and the scribes. These are the, who the tenant farmers represent in Jesus' parable. Now, there are other tenant farmers in, in, in prior aspects of Israel's history, such as the kings and the priests that were there through the Old Testament Israel. Now, the owner of the vineyard, again, represents Yahweh, the only true God, who had called Israel to be his own people and expected things of them. And so the fact that Jesus emphasizes this fact that that Israel and these, these aspects surrounding Israel were established by God. The man, the owner, is planting this vineyard. And so Jesus, or so God rather, chose his people Israel. The, the Old Testament tells the story. It was his nation. He had put the nation in the care of men who were to be the kings and the priests to care and to cultivate the people in the Lord's stead as his representatives. So these tenant farmers were to be representatives of the landowner, doing his will in his land. However, after a fair amount of time, look at verse 10, when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. Understandably, the landowner wants some of the produce. He says, all right, harvest, the grapes should be ripe, we should be good. Why don't you go get, get, get our share of that? And sends a, a servant to go do that. But the tenant farmers would have not, none of this and didn't want to share any of it. And so we see at the end of verse 10, but the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Now the landowner here could easily be angered and say, what in the world are you doing? I, 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 I pay your bills. I've set this all up. This is my land. I should re be receiving produce from my land. But he doesn't respond in fierce, violent action as he could. Instead, he's patient and he sends yet another servant. Verse 11, and he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. The, the violence is escalating. First, they just beat him and sent him away. Here, they treated him, beat him and treated him shamefully. He's, they, they can become more bold and can continue to defy the request. And they understand that as the landowner continues to send uh, servants there to request of the produce, they recognize that the, the pleading is getting more urgent, that the landowner is serious. This wasn't just a half-hearted venture to go and receive the produce. He, he's, he's sending more and more, and he's going to keep sending. But then, even after the second servant was beat, the landowner continues to be patient and sends yet a third. Look at verse 12. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. They wound him, wounded him. The word for wound here is a word from which uh, we get the word trauma. And you could say that they traumatized this man in the way that they treated him. Again, let's remind ourselves of the players here. Who's the landowner? It's God. Who are the tenant farmers? Well, they are Israel's leaders down through their history. 
And the servants in this parable, those who came from the, the landowner to the land on behalf of the owner, they represent the prophets. The prophets that God sent to Israel down through their history. He sent them to his people over and over, over hundreds of years. And what's interesting is here they're, they're called uh, the landowner's servants or slaves. And in the Old Testament, the prophets are actually called over and over again the servants of Yahweh, the servants of the Lord. For example, 2 Kings chapter 17 says this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. Or consider Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 25, where it says, From the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. This verse particularly highlights what Jesus is bringing out in his parable. That day by day, since the nation was founded, since the vineyard was planted, that God has sent his servants, the prophets, day after day, calling them to walk according to the Lord. Amos chapter 3 verse 7 says, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. God revealed his will to his prophets who then spoke it to his people Israel. And Israel should have listened. They should have listened the first time. But they didn't. And Jesus illustrates that through this parable that, that as the prophets went and pleaded with Israel, they instead mistreated. They didn't just ignore the prophets. They, they beat and harmed the prophets. And they mistreated him just like Jesus says. I want you to turn with me to 2 Chronicles 36. 2 Chronicles 36. And here we get a historical account of this very action of the mistreating of the prophets that God sent to Israel. It's not just hyperbole that Jesus is using in this parable. 2 Chronicles 36, verses 14 through 16. It says in 2 Chronicles 36, 14, all the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful, following all the abominations of the nations. And they polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. We could turn to other places of where they mistreated and through Jeremiah in a pit. You can turn to Hebrews chapter 11 that speaks about how they, they sawed prophets in two and they were hunted for their lives. Jesus had already described this mistreatment in Luke eleven forty nine 49 through 51 where he blames even the religious leaders of his day for the ways that they killed the prophets. 
And so Israel just didn't just ignore the prophets, but they mistreated and killed them. And this showed not just their disregard of the prophets, right? It showed their disregard of who? Of God himself, because they were God's messengers. And so as we flip back to Luke chapter 20, as we read this part of the parable in which God is seeking to find the, the produce from Israel that they would have the right fruit. And yet, he, and yet they beat the servants and send them away. In all of this, we see God's patience. God's patience that he continues to plead with them, continues to go after them. As we just read in 2 Chronicles, what motivated that sending of the messengers over and over again? It was his compassion on his people his compassion for them, that they would turn from their ways, they would find life in him. But they remained obstinate. And God had every right to destroy them right away. He had every right to, to, to wipe them off the map. But in, he continued to send prophets over and over again. The parable only represents three times, it describes three servants. These are representative, showing that it was complete, that he had done everything out of his compassion. He did not wipe his people off the map out of their, on their first infraction, but he patiently continued to send messengers, his servants, the prophets, giving them another chance. And yet, in all of this, Israel remained hardened against God and his messengers. And friends, as we read of the patience of God here represented in this parable, we're reminded of the truth that God is yet patient today. That God is patient on sinners, obstinate sinners today. He patiently keeps sending his messengers, his people out into all the world that the nations might know that there is forgiveness found in Jesus' name. And he's patient. He's provided a way for sinners to be saved Church, think about your own story. Think about God's patience in your own life. How God has sent messengers time and again into your life. And how there were times that you didn't listen and you didn't believe. And yet the Lord continued in his patience and his grace to continue to send messengers your way. Even if you grew up in the, in the church, someone like myself that made a profession of faith at an early age, God is patient with us as well, continuing to draw us to himself for if he had not done so, we would surely go our own way. God is patient to work in our hearts. And the scriptures are clear that why is God patient? Why does he wait? Why does he withhold judgment? It's because he wants sinners to repent of their sins. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The heart of God is that sinners would turn from their sinful ways and they would find refuge in Christ, that they would find salvation in Jesus alone. And so he is patient withholding the final judgment of the world so that sinners might hear the gospel and he sends his messengers, the church, to go and make disciples of all the nations. They might hear this message. When people reject Christ and the gospel... They are spurning and abusing his patience. 
And there will be a day when that patience will be up and there will be no more time. So we see first in this passage, in the first contrast, God's patience in the face of Israel's obstinacy. But there's a second contrast that we see in this passage, and that is God's persistence in the face of Israel's irrationality. God's persistence in the face of Israel's irrationality. Now verse 13 becomes a key verse in this passage. It's the hinge verse. It's, the, it's a climax of sorts. For here we hear the landowner speak to himself. We get to get inside his head and hear his thoughts. Look at verse 13. The owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? He seems to be at a loss. What, what else can I do? I seem to have done everything. Maybe he just hasn't sent somebody important enough, he thinks. Now this particular question, what shall I do, as if he is at a loss, is although God, this owner of the vineyard represents God, this kind of befuddlement does not truly represent uh, God, the Lord. Again, this is where we can't draw out all these details to say everything that does, uh, you know, all of the details of this story do not necessarily speak to true theology. There's a point that Jesus is bringing out here. God is not unsure about what he will do. In fact, what he will do has been determined from eternity past. There are, there are no unknowns when it comes to God. He knows all things. But in this story, the owner of the vineyard says, what shall I do? And I believe that this question expresses the frustration, the stretching of the heart of God towards his people. He has compassion on them and his desire is that they would turn, that they would repent, that they would listen. And he keeps looking for another method to draw them to himself. He's not ready to let them go yet. He could have sent armed mercenaries marching right into that vineyard, killing those wicked tenants instantly, but he's still searching for another way. He shows incredible patience and devises an outrageous plan. Look at what he says. 13, what should I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Now this designation as beloved son should jump out off the page as readers of Luke's gospel because we've heard that title before. We've heard in particular a voice from heaven say this is my beloved son. And we've heard it twice in this gospel. We've heard it in chapter three as Jesus was being baptized and he came up out of the water and the heavens were opened and the father said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. We heard it again at the, on the Mount of Transfiguration in Luke chapter nine, verse 35. We're there as he's joined by Moses and Elijah. There God the father speaks again from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. This beloved son, friends, in this story represents none other, than, none other than Jesus himself. Jesus has inserted himself into the story and now this story for his audience there is, is very current. They all recognize this is, he's talking about us, he's talking about him. And here he's making a stunning claim about himself. He recognizes, he knows that he is the beloved son of the father. He believed the words that were from heaven. He believed the scriptures that spoke of him. He knows he is the beloved son of God. 
this landowner, by sending his son, takes on incredible risk to himself. He's not protecting his assets. He's not seeking to hedge his bets. He is opening himself at his most vulnerable point and sending his only son. He has already taken a hit on three servants and the farmers have become more and more violent. It's very plausible to believe that, it's, that when he sends his son, something bad and more drastic, more violent is going to happen. And yet he's willing to do it in order to help the farmers in his vineyard. His hope, he says, is that his, the farmers, the tenant farmers would respect his son. He hopes that they will see their shame, that they will recognize, wow, this, this, this farmer, this landowner is so desperate that, that he sent his own son. What have we done? He hopes that they would humble their hearts and receive him. But as we know, that's not what happens. Verse 14 tells us what the farmers are thinking. Look at it with me. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. They knew that he was the heir of the estate and they somehow thought that if they got rid of the son, that the landowner would somehow bequeath the rest of the vineyard to them. And so verse 15 says, based upon this thinking, they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. They thought, this is simple logic. We can, this is going to be great. We kill him, we get the vineyard. It's, it's all going to work out for us. Now, some have tried to explain the rationale of these farmers. They're saying it's quite logical because, see, there were certain Jewish laws that set it up that if the landowner, the heir died and whatnot. I think what's clear here is that the, the landowner is still alive, that his son would be killed, um, and what would the landowner do if his son is slaughtered by the tenant farmers? I mean, we can fill in the gaps there. These farmers couldn't. There's no way that they can kill the master's son and get away with it. There's no law anywhere where that is going to, is going to pass. And so this thinking of these tenant farmers here in verse uh, 14 I believe shows the irrationality of sin. And this is true of all sin. All sin is irrational. Of course, we logically rationalize it in our heads so it makes sense by the time we, we commit the sin. But in the light of who God is, in light, of the, in light of the way he set up this universe, all sin is irrational. When we have rejected God's word and we refuse to follow him in this instance or that, we find ourselves disconnected from sane thinking. This has been put into colloquial terms to say that sin makes you stupid. Sin makes you stupid. And we see this all the time, don't we not? We see it in our own lives where we sin in such a way and, and we think we can get away with it. We think everything's going to be fine if we just skirt God's word here, if we disobey here. And yet, it doesn't go well with us. You can read it in news stories. The the spouse that kills the other spouse and, and this whole complicated murder mystery and they, ultimately all the details come out and you go, what was, what was she thinking? What was he thinking? They get away with it. And yet they believe they could. We see it even in, illustrated in simple sins such as a child who denies eating the chocolate chip cookie even though there's chocolate on their face. 
Irrationality comes with all sin. Let's go back to the, to the original sin. Satan thought he could be like the most high God. That was pretty stupid of him. Why would a created being think that he could become like the infinite one? Or take Eve. She thought she'd become like God if she ate the fruit and things would be better for her. Even though God had spoken to the contrary. Moses thought it would be better to lash out in anger and strike the rock twice instead of speak to it like God said. David thought it'd be okay if he committed adultery and then murdered Bathsheba's husband. Sin makes us stupid. It's irrational. And so as we pull back from the parable and we move to the real life situation that Jesus was speaking of, not just farmers and landowners and, and whatnot, but we pull back to Jesus and God the Father and the, the religious leaders that were right there in front of him. We find that Jesus is making an incredible claim about himself and a stunning prediction about his enemies. He reveals there in this parable for all to hear the murderous plans of the men that are standing right there eyeing him down. They think they can get rid of Jesus and that they will continue to be in power. They will continue to receive the inheritance as the parable says. They will, their money will continue to flow. They think that they will continue to be the inheritors of God's blessing. That they are in the stream of God's pleasure. But how can you kill God's son and think that you're going to remain in the stream of God's pleasure? Sin is irrational. They think they can kill Jesus and get away with it. They think things will be better if they kill the son of God. And yet we know that in the story of the gospel, even though Israel was hard-hearted, even though they went forward with their plans and their irrational opposition was carried out, that God's plan persisted and that he was able to win sinners through that sin anyway. God persisted. He sent his son and even though he knew that his son would be killed, even though that God foreknew that, that he was slain before the foundation of the world, that, that God went forward with his plan. And aren't we glad that he did? Only God could take twisted, irrational sinners and accomplish his purposes. He brought about the greatest good from the greatest evil. Hallelujah. There was no greater wicked act than the killing of the son of God with such blatant disregard, such cold-hearted murder of the perfect one. And yet it was through that murder, the crucifixion of Jesus upon the cross, that our sins were atoned for, friends. It was through that great evil that God worked it for our good. And we are simply in amazement, are we not? The contrast of God's faithful, loving persistence in the face of Israel's irrationality is a reminder that even when we irrationally follow after sin, that God is persistent to pursue us. We are not forgotten. He is merciful even as we are sinful. And we praise God for that. But let's turn now, look at the third contrast that's in this text. We've seen the two, let's look at the third and this contrast is God's punishment in the face of Israel's wickedness. God's punishment in the face of Israel's wickedness. And we see this in the second half of verse 15 in the first part of 16. We've seen 
Israel's obstinate rebellion illustrated as the tenant farmers have beat the landowner's servants and then finally his own son. And even though God has been patient, incredibly patient, he will eventually judge sin. And this is illustrated in the landowner's response in the second half of 15 and first part of 16. It says, what then, Jesus asks, will the owner of the vineyard do to them? What will he do to them? Verse 16, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Jesus asked a question to the audience to for have them participate in the thinking of what's going on here. What will the landowner do? The supposition behind the question is, though, that the landowner's got to do something. The landowner can't just forget about it. He can't just move on. He can't just ignore this kind of wickedness and this rebellion. He can't stand idly by. He must respond to such an egregious crime, both to his servants, but most importantly, the murder of his son. Now, in the other gospel accounts, in Luke and Matthew, the the answer to Jesus' question is put in the mouth of the crowds, the people around. Here in Luke, he has Jesus answer his own question. And I could see it happen as the, Jesus asks the question, the crowd gives an answer, and Jesus says yes, and he repeats the answer in his own way. And he says simply, verse 16, that he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. His punishment will be swift. There's going to be no discussion. There's going to be no trial. He's simply going to come and destroy those wicked tenants that he has tried to persuade time and time again. In this statement, Jesus was predicting the judgment of God upon the wickedness of Israel's leaders. Just as certain as Israel's leaders will kill God's son, so is the certainty that God will punish these leaders. I believe the down payment, as it were, of this punishment came in AD 70 when God, through the Roman army, destroyed the temple and humbled the nation of Israel. But ultimately, when is the true punishment, when is the, the full wrath of God, when is the full eternal destruction of these wicked leaders coming? It's coming in the final judgment. And that is when he will ultimately destroy them. To these religious men, Again, remember who we're talking about here. These were the men that were looked to as the leaders, not only politically, but religiously of the nation. People on the ground would have thought them as the most holy men, as the one who knew the scriptures the best, of the ones who pointed them to God and the way of God. And yet these are the ones that Jesus calls out and says that they are going to be destroyed by God. They thought they were God's chosen people. They thought they had their place in heaven secured. But Jesus tells them otherwise. They will be destroyed by God's wrath. And the vineyard will be taken away from them and given to others. In the book of Matthew, his account of this parable, he records that Jesus says that the kingdom of God will be taken away from them and given to a people, a nation producing its fruits. Part of Israel's judgment is that they will no longer be the stewards of the kingdom. The kingdom was coming through Israel. The promises all prophesied that. But here, because of the rejection of the Son of God, 
It will be transferred to a people, a nation producing its fruits. I believe it will be a future nation of Israel in the final day, the Romans 11, when all Israel will be saved, when, when they will, Zechariah says, look upon him that they pierce and they'll weep for him as they weep for an only son. But in the meantime, the stewardship of the promises, the stewardship of the blessings of the new covenant are proclaimed through the church. We are called a holy nation in 1 Peter 2 verse 9. And so now we preach the gospel of the kingdom, telling people of the coming kingdom of Christ. We tell them that in order to enter this kingdom one day, one must repent of their sins and trust in Jesus, the king, today. The church now is the steward of the gospel of the kingdom. So what does this contrast here mean for us, that God's punishment in the face of Israel's wickedness? It reminds us that God will punish sin even if that punishment is not immediate. These leaders did not receive instant retribution from God. They crucified Christ. There wasn't suddenly lightning from the sky that struck them dead. But make no mistake, judgment did come and will come. In the same way, God will punish the sins of all who refuse to repent and turn to Christ in this age. And as we said earlier, God is patient, desiring that all would turn to Christ, but he ultimately will punish sin of all those that have not been confessed and thrown upon Christ. And friends, this is a sober warning that must sit upon all our hearts. I think it's a special warning for those who believe that they are safe from future judgment because of their involvement in the church. Those who think that just because they're around church or around Christians that they are okay, but they themselves haven't personally believed and trusted in Christ. Friends, simply association with the church is not salvation. Salvation comes from each individual crying out to the Lord, seeking his mercy and repenting of their sins, casting it aside and trusting in Jesus alone. And every one of us must do that. No one can do it for you. But it's easy to be deluded as these leaders were. And so I believe there's also a, a caution and a warning and a, a warning to, to leaders in the church. God can and will remove his leaders, will, will remove leaders of the church as he removed leaders of Israel. He does not need any man. He can, he causes leaders to rise and to fall. He will accomplish his purposes either way, but God will not be mocked and he will get the final say and bring the judgment that is just. Well, we've looked at three contrasts in this text. Let's look at the fourth and final one this morning. The fourth and final contrast in this text is God's plan in the face of Israel's rejection. God's plan in the face of Israel's rejection. After Jesus tells the fate of the tenant vine growers, the crowd, but more specifically the leadership, protests. They were strong, very strongly. Look at verse, uh, end of verse 16. It says, when they heard this, they said, surely not, surely not. This declaration, the sur translated surely not here, is the same const Greek construction that Paul uses in Romans over and over again, where it's translated, uh, may it never be. A strong declaration of opposition, of disagreement. May it never be, surely not. These leaders know that this parable speaks of them, as verse 19 clearly says. They understood that, that this 
judgment was coming upon them, but they would have none of it. They couldn't believe that this was actually going to happen. And they're protesting against Jesus' conclusion. Surely not. We're not going to be destroyed. There's not going to be destruction from the landowner because we are God's people. But ultimately, by showing a a protest against Jesus' conclusion shows that they are rejecting the messenger. They're rejecting God's son and thereby actually fulfilling the parable itself. They don't want Jesus. Jesus, sensing this intense opposition, look at what he does in verse 17. He looked at them directly and said, what then is this that is written? Jesus looks at them in the eye, very pointedly, and says these words to them, asking them the question about what is written in the scriptures. He points back to the prophecy of Psalm 118, verse 22, that speaks about the rise of Israel's king. But when he does so, he quotes Psalm 118, verse 22. He shows that he knows that he's the one who's rejected. In essence, he's saying, as you reject me, Israel... As you, the builders, as you, the the, the leaders of Israel, you reject me. What you don't know is that God's going to use that rejection to place me as the cornerstone. The cornerstone was a large stone used to support two walls. It was a, a key foundation stone that the rest of the building was built upon. The whole structure depended upon the cornerstone. And so Jesus is saying that even though the men standing there in front of him will reject him, God will exalt him and will build a new edifice on him. He will be the cornerstone. And Paul notes this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, where he says that the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ himself being the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. He was exalted to that position upon his resurrection and, and ascension to heaven. And so by this statement here, by quoting this verse, Jesus shows that Israel and its leaders do not stand on the side of God. In fact, they stand against him. Because what's God doing? God is exalting his cornerstone while Israel is rejecting it. They have their own agenda. They have their own plan for how things are supposed to go. And Jesus stands in the way and so they reject him. And they'll put him on a cross. But but God will have the final say. Their plan will not succeed. God's plan will ultimately win. Jesus wins and he is exalted forevermore. The situation, from the situation in front of him, Jesus then draws out a principle that applies to all people since in verse 18. Look at it with me. It says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. This verse alludes to Isaiah chapter eight, verses 14 through 15. And the point is this, God does not take the rejection of his son lightly. Rejecting Jesus has devastating consequences. He describes it here as being broken to pieces and being crushed. And friends, this is the fate of all those who reject Christ, who turn from him. No one will get away with refusing to bow the knee to Jesus. This goes for the hardened atheist as well as the proud, hypocritical churchgoer. It applies to those who are running hard after sinful ways of the world and to those who trust in their good deeds for salvation. 
both the immoral sinner who knows he's living wickedly and the religious sinner who thinks he's good enough to get into heaven are headed for an eternity in hell unless both of them turn to Jesus Christ. Salvation is found in him and him alone. So friends, we must hear this this morning that Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the foundation and salvation is found in him alone. He has been exalted as Christ and Lord and he calls all people everywhere to repent and to trust in him alone for salvation. And so we beg of you to look to him today. Don't trust in yourself. Don't trust in your own good deeds. Don't trust in a future day. Don't, don't think that you're going to have time. We don't know when our day will come. Turn to him today. Because if you don't, then you'll be crushed. You'll be broken into pieces by the wrath of Jesus when he comes a second time. But now he's being patient that all would turn to him. He's being merciful to you, to us, even this morning. If you desire to find forgiveness for your sin and find life and eternal life, then you can call out for God right where you are, right in this instant, in the quietness of your heart. Pray to him that he would save you. And he's promised that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We don't deserve it, but he loves to save hell-deserving sinners. So friends, we've looked at four contrasts this morning in this text. We've seen the heights of God's righteousness and his plan And we've also seen the depths of Israel's rebellion. But in all this, we've seen that there are catastrophic consequences for rejecting God's son. And I pray that we would all take these truths to heart this morning. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Lord, we thank you for this morning. And we thank you for your word. It gives us very clear that we must look to Christ that there is salvation found in no one else, that Jesus is the cornerstone upon which you are building the church and that all those who reject that stone will ultimately be crushed underneath it. Oh, Father, I pray that you would please work in each heart that is here. Help us to evaluate our own lives, Father, that we would see that we are trusting in Christ alone not in our association with the church, not in a track record of attendance to church, not in any sort of good deeds that we have done, Father, for they are all filthy rags. But may we come in humility and desperation asking that you would save us out of your mercy. We thank you that you've promised to answer those calls and we rest in that this morning in Jesus' name.